Welcome to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me the chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in, and special thanks to those of you who through one means or another reached out to me with your kind and supportive words about the season opener with Tamara Faber last week. She is indeed something special, and y'all made me feel special too, and I appreciate it. I share your enthusiasm for the educator season. And I'm grateful for all of your recommendations for people who should be on the podcast this season. And while I can hardly imagine getting to all of them, there are a couple of recommendations that I'm definitely going to pursue. And as ever, if you should have comments, questions, concerns, or you just want to reach out, hit me up on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, shoot me an email. I've linked you to me in the show notes. And if you're a loyal listener and you'd like to support independent creators, please support me over at patreon.com slash studs. I'll link to that in the show notes also. Look, I promise to keep studs free for you, and I'm not going to pressure you to drop your hard-earned bucks on my podcast. But if you dig studs, if you appreciate these explorations into working lives, and you want to do your part to keep it going, well, I offer some pretty, pretty cool rewards to Studs patrons. You should check it out. Again, that's patreon.com slash studs. And I want to take a hot minute here to give a quick shout out to an anonymous patron, a very kind, very generous patron, who is explicit about her desire to not share her name. But she knows who she is. She's a regular listener. She's out there somewhere in Texas. And I just want to give her big ups, show some love, show some gratitude. Thank you, Texas. And look, if the time isn't right for you to donate to studs, I get it. We're good. But it would mean the world to me if you could just do this. Hit subscribe or follow. Do it now. Go ahead. Go ahead. And then tell a pal or two about this podcast. Maybe recommend an episode that you know they'd love. You can twist their arm a little bit. It's okay by me. And you might want to recommend this episode because this episode is with Kate Mueller. Kate is an early years educator wholeheartedly devoted to holistic instruction. She walks us through the challenges and opportunities of working in a bicultural, bilingual environment. And she discusses how and why she creates warm, welcoming, and empowering communities that make five-year-olds want to come to school. She's an esteemed educator, so kind, so compassionate, a bona fide all-star. You'll see what I mean. Just join me in conversation with Kate Mueller. Kate Mueller, welcome to Studs. It is a pleasure to have you. How do you describe what you do? Hi, Daniel. Happy to be here. First and foremost, I'm responsible for five to eight-year-olds, depending on what grade I'm teaching, for about six hours every day. And then the fun part, of course, is what happens during those five to six hours. 
I'm responsible for teaching them a curriculum, reading, writing, preschool skills, depending on what grade I'm teaching. But for me, the most important part of that time, the way that I like to think of it is creating a community of learners with those very small children, getting each one to feel like they can be the most self-confident and the most responsible and respectful individual within a community. I'm encouraged to hear that so early in our conversation, you're already talking about creating community, as I know that that's at the heart of what you strive to do. And we're certainly going to dive into all of that. But before we do, I know that you studied English literature some 20 years ago. And I know you. I know you have a beautiful brain and a big, robust heart. I also know that you could have done practically anything. You chose to become an early elementary teacher. Why? Good question. Um, well, when I first graduated Reed College, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Since I was an English major, I thought, okay, I should be a lawyer or a journalist or an English professor. English professors seem the most graspable, but writing, I feel like, is one of my strengths. It's the way I express myself the best, but it's also very painful. Yeah. <laughs> um, so while I'm always like thrilled after I'm finished with something, the whole process is, is very painful for me. So I, I knew that I needed to take a little bit of time and really think about what I wanted to do before I signed up for a life of torturing myself. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I had a lot of friends in Portland at the time. I had a boyfriend there and I just kind of looked for an excuse to stay for an extra year. And so I got a job working as a coordinator for a program called Start Making a Reader Today, SMART. I had volunteered for it for one year while I was still in college. You basically pair a volunteer with an at-risk student and you just have them read in a room for 30 minutes twice a week. And the idea is to form a relationship with that child, but specifically with and around books. So you're not teaching them how to read. The focus is on the relationship. And I loved being a volunteer for that program. And I was really good at it. Like, it was really fun to set up a room to make the displays for the books and then to welcome in the kids. It was really exciting to see kids that the teachers had identified as needing help in some way. Maybe they didn't need help learning how to read. Maybe they just needed another adult to talk to because their home lives were really terrible in this part of Portland. But I just felt like this is where I want to be. It was it was really fun to just see kids who kind of come in nervous or who come in unsettled or, or active just to kind of like hone their energy into something that's making them feel good about themselves. Um, so that was kind of a turning point for me where I decided, yeah, I think I don't know that I want to be a teacher for the rest of my life. So I thought, yeah, I maybe I'll be a teacher educator someday. But I knew that at that point. I wanted to work with younger kids. Now, we don't need to take too deep of a dive into it, but if I recall correctly, there is a chapter of your life where you you were pursuing a PhD up to the point of completing your dissertation. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, of course. So um, I did a one-year master's program at Boston College to become a teacher. It was kind of a, a quick intense program that kind of fast-tracked you into being a teacher. And then the next year I became a teacher and it was, it was great. You know, it had its challenges, but by the end of that year, I felt like, wow, 
I, I don't think I'm going to be happy doing this for the rest of my life. It might become too easy. <laughs> I decided that I knew it all and wanted to make <laughs> the best school ever and be a principal. And so I took some classes in administration and quickly realized that that would not be for me. <laughs> Yeah, so I realized that starting my own school would not be as easy as I thought it would be. <laughs> um, I was doing this in the evening while continuing to teach, and I was just very hyper aware that most teachers stop teaching after five years, and I thought this would happen to me. I, I would get bored with little kids because it would become too easy because it became easier and easier each year. And so I think it was the third year I joined Boston College's curriculum and instruction program. So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that the desire to pursue the PhD was born out of twin motivations. One was the fear that you were going to somehow age out of teaching and the ambition to perhaps one day start a school that reflected your values and priorities as an educator. Am I close? That was the impetus. Like uh -huh. that's what that's what got me started. And then when I realized that that would be too complicated uh -huh. for me just to fight the institutions that exist, I thought I wanted to have the option open to me to be a teacher educator. I mean, I think part of it was in my master's program, we really talked about teacher communities and collaboration and that kind of thing. And you have these lofty ideals and ideas about how you'll go into a school and make a difference. And then you actually go into a school and I ended up choosing to go into a, like a good school with a lot of resources, a suburban school. I ended up choosing that over working in a more difficult urban school. And I was kind of disappointed with the way the reality looked with, with how little teachers actually did collaborate and I was searching for what can I do to improve that? How can I maybe, I don't know, just have a little more intellectual stimulation with colleagues? I was worried it would be too frustrating for me after a while. And so I thought maybe being a teacher educator would be eventually more interesting. But you never totally turned the corner on that. You ended up leaving the country and devoting your professional life to early years education. And while I imagine there might have been some joy in taking a victory lap around finishing the dissertation, I have to say I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing. Not that I want to glorify the work in the trenches per se, despite me being in them myself, yeah. <laughs> but because I know that the work that you do is it's really powerful. And that's largely why I wanted to have you on the podcast. You're kind of a, a legend in my mind. You do really splendid work. And so we should probably dive into that work. In the last decade or so of your career, you've been teaching entrance class, first and second grade. I'm not entirely sure where we should start there, but since you studied literature and since I know you're an avid reader and you care a lot about letters, maybe we should start there. I think when we consider early years education, probably the first thing that comes to most of our minds is reading and writing, like, you know, kindergarten, first, second grade. That's where I learned to read and write. 
I know you do much more than that, and we'll talk about that, but maybe we can start there. I'm going to ask a real on-the-nose question, and I hope you'll forgive me. (laughs) How do you teach kids to read and write? Yeah, that's a big question. Step one is developing an awareness and appreciation for books. Every day, the kids is part of our daily routine and entrance class, going to the book corner, and I have several boxes of books set up attractively around different themes. And they're just free for five minutes. I've One of the kids' jobs in the classroom is to put on the timer for five minutes. And they just look at books for five minutes every single day from day one till the end of the year. So that's kind of step one. I also have a display of books that I change out regularly based on whatever theme we're learning about. I read to them every day. And at some point in the year, usually around November or something like this, at least one kid will go over to a book that I've read to the class, usually one of the more simple ones or a funny one, and and kind of just read it. They're, They're not necessarily reading it, but they're pretending to read it. And the other kids will get interested in that. So interest and exposure is is step one. Formal reading instruction doesn't begin until mid-year and entrance class, and it's very basic. It's not like what you would do in kindergarten in the United States. And basically, we just introduce a few letters, one letter at a time, usually with a song. The kids will think of words that begin with that letter. So just introducing this idea that there is something called a letter, it makes a sound. We usually start with the letters in their name, and just try to make it interesting and fun and kind of game-based. Like maybe they'll play bingo with those letters or sort words that ha- that all start with the same sound. So after interest comes like the formal instruction, trying to introduce in a fun and, and somehow relevant way the letters. So for example, on the board, I'll have an L and then we'll draw, I'll ask the kids to think of how many words can you think of that begin with O? and draw a picture and and label it. And hopefully there'll be a kid in the class named Lucas or something like that. And so they have that kind of personal connection. And then there's these great songs on the internet by Have Fun Teaching. And they kind of like, we, we try to guess each word that might be in that song before it plays. And then also at the same time, the kids learn how to hold the pencil and they practice writing the letter, but hopefully we can do it in a fun way, like writing in sand or making it out of wiki sticks. So it has to be somehow tactile and and interesting for the kids. When they realize that they can make words and write words besides their name, that's usually a turning point. Um, in first grade in Germany, The kids typically come in, they've probably forgotten everything they've learned in entrance class, and we kind of start from square one. First, learning the letters. I'll introduce one letter at a time, and then a short vowel sound as quickly as possible. So again, they can start making words as quickly as possible and have that sense of success that, like, I made a word. Yeah. Um, And then we also have these decodable readers, you would call them, that have words that are easy to identify that have letters that we've learned so the kids can quickly develop a sense of like, I can do that. I can, I can read, you know, there's some kids that are really confident and they think they can do more than they can do. And there's kids that are really not confident and they think they can't do anything. And so you can kind of prove to them by showing them a book without word that they, that they can read. 
And then it just kind of snowballs from there. Every in, in first grade, they write at least three times a week. By writing, they kind of learn to read because they have a purpose. Yes. So usually I start off maybe with sentence completions where like on the weekend I played with my cat or whatever it is. And if if the kid is totally stuck, you just have to take them from where they are and you can write almost everything for them, but you just push each kid as, as much as they're ready to be pushed. So maybe they just write the letter C for cat or something like that. But then the next kid over actually has to write every word because they have more background knowledge. But I think a big part of it is looking at where each kid is at and just every day pushing them a a little bit more to recognize that they can do something and they can do a little bit more. Um, Can I ask two short follow-up questions? Yeah, please. (laughs) A number of times in your response which I should say I I quite enjoyed, and I thank you for it. (laughs) You brought up fun. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about the role of fun and play and pleasure in the process of teaching young people to read. Yeah, I mean, I think it's essential. With, With older kids, they have already identified their interests. But with younger kids, maybe they don't they don't have a reason to be interested in reading yet necessarily. Some do, but a lot don't. And so if it's not fun, then what's the point? I've seen some smart kids struggle because if there's no purpose, then what's the point? And if they're already feeling insecure, then how can they make that that leap to learn something? Why would they turn their brain on? So the idea is to get them through movement, through games to get them to like connect to these abstract letters that are kind of maybe right now totally meaningless in their lives because they are so little to get them to somehow connect to that. And then if fun is the first purpose, it's a lot easier to discover the second purpose, which is maybe to express yourself to a group and get pleasure out of that. And then maybe the next step is to write about an interest that you have and share that with the group and get feedback on that and then improve your writing from there. But I think with little kids, many of whom are very insecure, many of whom are not, they need to somehow get get hooked. You actually rather perfectly ended that response to what was and still is the second follow-up question I have. Some of your students are totally game. They're eager to read. They have confidence in themselves or at least in their reading skills. And other kids are really insecure readers. They're anxious readers. Now, this might be part of a broader insecurity or anxiety that they have, but perhaps not. And so my question is, In your work, how do you strive to create a safe but a challenging space for young learners who have anxieties and insecurities about reading? I guess there's two main angles. The first is through the community, and then the second is through the relationship with the individual. And of course, those are related, but you have to kind of approach them in two different ways. So You build community primarily through having fun together, doing activities together. So I usually like to start a mother tongue class in first or second grade with a game. Word wall games is one way that the kids are active. And each individual 
has an easy opportunity to be a leader there. Like they, they have a role that they play. Like they identify the word or identify the game. They, they have a purpose and, and different kids take turns. And maybe a really insecure person will be slower to volunteer to, to take on that role as a leader. But because it's accessible, eventually they'll, they'll take that role or I'll kind of prompt them to take that role and support them in doing that until they feel comfortable to do it themselves. So that's one way to build community. You provide a space where the kids are expected to share something that they've done eventually, like, and that they can be proud of and then get feedback on it. And then on the individual side, the most important thing for all aspects in teaching, but especially I think with anxious students who are learning to read, for example, is that personal relationship of trust that you have with them. Um, if they trust you and they trust the other students in the reading group, then they'll take the risk that they need to take to learn how to read. So it's really important that I demonstrate to them that I respect them, that I believe in them, that I know that they can learn to read. They kind of know that implicitly and explicitly. And also to be very clear and consistent from the beginning about how I expect other students to respect each other within the class. So I get this sense, both in listening to you and in thinking about my education and my job and my daughter's education, that so much of your success and your work is defined by your ability and your willingness to create communities where young people feel comfortable and thus feel willing to be vulnerable so that they could learn and grow and develop. I wonder if I could urge you to talk a little bit about how you do that. How do you create that climate? Yeah, I mean, it takes time. And with every new school year, I'm always just really ready for that short period of time where you meet new people and they meet you and you know you don't trust each other yet. Yeah, You know that you'll get to that point, um, but you got to make it happen. And those first few weeks, you have to be patient and it takes time. So the first way is to have each child feel purposeful. For example, I make sure that all 18 or 20 of my students have a classroom job. And it seems like a really small thing, maybe to be the person to turn off the lights or to be first in line or to be the quiet monitor or whatever. But if each child has a job and a purpose that they know that they're going to do, and they know that all of their classmates have a job and a purpose that lasts for a week, it's just a really easy way to kind of get everyone on board. One of those jobs is usually the class star, I call it. And at the end of every week, in first and second grade, we give the star compliments. So no one has to give a compliment, but just at the end of the day before recess on, on Friday, I have to model it so they don't just acknowledge the person's t-shirt or their hair or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. We try to think of a specific example of what we really value about that person or an experience that you had with that person that made you feel good. And so I try to get them as specific as a seven or eight year old can be. And usually it starts off with a lot of modeling. The compliments are usually, I really like the way you clean up. Like if I model that, for example, for a little <laughs> while, 
But even just for a kid to hear, I'm really happier in my class. That's one of the most popular compliments. Yeah. Um, or I really liked when you helped another student put on his shoes or, or whatever it is. By giving the compliment, you feel good and you feel more connected to the class because you're automatically connecting with another person. And then, of course, that person feels amazing. I'll bet that goes a long way to creating community. I have to confess that your description of that made me all sorts of emotional. I think that's really beautiful. And I'm sure that the students enjoy it immensely. And I can only hope that after all these years, you continue to enjoy being a community builder. And I want to posit that building community is particularly important in the environment in which you teach. You teach at a bicultural, bilingual school. And I guess I wonder, to be blunt, like what it means to you to be a bilingual educator. Well, I'm not a bilingual educator. I'm an English mother tongue speaker, but I educate in a in a school where there are several bilingual kids. I'm actually paid by the state of Berlin to teach in my mother tongue. I break that rule <laughs> quite often, but don't tell the authorities. A majority of the kids in my class are usually bilingual. They usually speak both German and English. And then there's usually a handful of kids that just speak English, which is my mother tongue, or German, which is my partner tongue. The challenge for me is getting the English mother tongue students to have access to the partner tongue without being a native speaker myself. And on the flip side, the other challenge is getting the the partner tongue students, the German ones, to deliver the content in a way that's very understandable and appropriate for their young age. That that's that can be a challenge. They'll learn English really easily. They'll learn their partner tongue more easily than the English mother tongue students in my class. Even if I'm speaking in German, learning the content will always be a little bit more challenging for them because they're also learning a partner language at the same time. I know how challenging it is. And while I prefer not to trammel and cliche, here I go. <laughs> there are challenges and there are opportunities. Yeah. Can you talk about the magnificent opportunity that you have to teach in a bilingual, bicultural environment? I mean, the, the most obvious opportunity is they can realize that they are teaching me while I'm teaching them. That That's so special to have that with such a young age that they actually feel like, and they are, teaching me German while I'm teaching them English. And that that's very powerful, especially for these anxious kids we were talking about before, to be able to go home to their parents and, and say that. That's really, really powerful. The other opportunity is you just... It, it forces me to really be reflective about how I am delivering content and who is understanding what. So it forces me to plan much more carefully than I would plan if I was just teaching a, an English group of kids, for example. I mean, I can go in, I don't want to make it sound like I do this all the time, but I can go in and t I, I teach English mother tongue just to the English mother tongue students. I barely need to prepare for that after doing that for 20 years. Like I know what they need. I can go in and I can wing it and still have a successful day as if I had prepared a lot for the lesson. 20 years of preparation, you're prepared. I'm prepared. But until I am at a higher level of speaking German, for example, I really need to think about how I'm delivering the message that I want to deliver. I, I like to think about what kind of phrases I'm repeating on a daily basis. 
one thing I didn't talk a lot about yet is is the importance of the routine and the, and the day plan, which is obviously to any parent, like the most important thing for any type of success in school is to have a consistent day plan. And within that day plan, what am I using the same phrases? Am I using slang? I, I really need to think about how I'm delivering words. They get to learn from each other, but that presents opportunities and challenges as well. I mean, one of the biggest challenges that I have in a in a bilingual classroom is getting the kids to integrate socially. And I have some years where I feel really successful in doing that. I mean, I can get everyone to work with anyone else in the classroom, but then when they go out to recess, who are they going to play with and who are they going to talk with? So a challenge is to create those opportunities within the classroom for them to kind of like force them into working with other people because kids will find a way to communicate with each other, whether they speak the same language or not. And so if you create enough of those opportunities for them to kind of bond or force them to communicate, either working together on a project or playing a game or whatever it is, they can really learn a lot from each other. So Kate, while a fair amount of your work is wrapped up in teaching, reading, and writing, and biculturalism and bilingualism, you're really expected to do much more than that. You're expected to teach the whole child, as they say. Now, all teachers, but especially early years teachers, seek to do just that. They seek to teach more than just math and literacy. What does it mean to you to teach the whole child, and how do you do that? Teaching the whole child would mean to teach not just the academics, but also the social and emotional skills that one needs to feel secure and like a full person and confident and so forth. And of course, in early childhood and probably throughout, but I only know early childhood, all of these things are related. I think we talked about this a little bit earlier. You can't learn to read if you're feeling emotionally or socially shut down or unable to process your emotions or deal with others socially. So, I mean, I spoke a little bit about how important building community and recognizing individual strengths are to getting kids to have a social awareness. But then there's also just the day-to-day emotions that tiny children are dealing with. In entrance class, for example, the first weeks of school, three kids might come in crying because they miss their mom because some of them have just turned five, for example. So just kind of giving kids really explicit strategies or reassurances for how to process and deal with sadness. Like you'll see your mom in a couple hours and not brushing off that they're not going to see mom, but just kind of helping them just day by day understand this is inevitable, that you just kind of have to accept this. That's part of school readiness. You have to say goodbye and helping them process those emotions that maybe can come out in a bigger way at home. But in school, you need to kind of be part of the group and you need to find ways to control your anger, for example. Each one of them are learning how to interact with other kids. And I have to explain this to parents as well. It very often happens on the playground that like John will hit Max. You have to help Max understand that John is dealing with his own sense of problems. 
And yeah, just to help kids understand that misunderstandings are real and that it really is a misunderstanding and they can still be friends after they fight. I mean, things that would be obvious to an adult, some adults are not necessarily obvious to, to children and they actually have to be explicitly taught that. So that's part of part of teaching the whole child, the social and the emotional skills. And then, of course, just beyond academics are working with your hands, working with your voice, singing, for example, doing doing art project is also kind of not necessarily academic, but, you know, singing can be almost spiritual or just this other other way of expressing yourself that's not necessarily academic. So I would also consider that to be teaching the whole child. Would you be so kind as to offer me some insight into how you are able to empathically grapple with the full range of emotions of 25 or six-year-old kids? Because it sounds to me like it could be very loud, (laughs) overwhelmingly stressful, and that it might even take a toll on you. Your work requires you to deal with some real big feelings, including your own. I guess I just want to know how you do that. I can say that it is much easier to do as a teacher than as a parent. So I could understand how you'd be asking that question, being a parent of a, of a young child. Several parents actually asked me that question (laughs) on a regular basis. But when you're present and you have a very clear structure to your day, the students know what's expected of them. They know that you respect them. Then somehow dealing with their outbursts or their insecurities becomes much easier. If you have a kid that's constantly having an emotional outburst, you have a little distance from them as a teacher and you can see that that behavior is some kind of communication. Maybe he's not secure in his friendships. Maybe he wants to show me that he's smart or she. So you have to kind of learn to read their behavior and also kind of have some sort of detachment to make sure that you're not taking it personally, which somehow for me is very easy to do with my class of children, not as easy to do with colleagues or my own family. I I don't know why. But I think it makes sense why. You turn it on for that day. So like I've had mornings as a parent where my kids are literally driving me crazy. You go into school completely exasperated from that But then you somehow find a way to turn it on as a teacher. Like, you know that you're going to have kids. They're going to come to you in the beginning of entrance class that might have just had the same battles with their parents. (laughs) Um, And you have to take them where they are and deal with each kid. One thing that was a big change for me teaching entrance class as opposed to first and second grade is any given year, I'll have a kid that will just cling to Papa or Mama and not let go in the morning. What do I do? I have 17 other kids there and parents making judgments on me about how like their kid feels unsettled because this other kid is screaming or how do, how do I respond to that? 
so you just have to take it in the moment and and kind of take them by the hand or make papa or mama carry the kid into the class listen as a as (laughs) as a parent of exactly that kid for longer than i care to admit i have no answers (laughs) whatsoever but the issue you raise there begs a question that I hope you don't mind. Because part of what you're charged to do in your work is to socialize young people to be prepared to be institutionalized for the next 12 or 16 years of your life. Neither of us are institutionalists. Right. But both of us seem almost strangely committed to this institutionalization process. The fact is that not everyone's ready for school just because they happened to have turned five. And I know that you and I have some deeply rooted concerns with all that. (laughs) Yeah. But for now, I just want to know how you work to create like a valuable and warm and welcoming experience for those kids too, right? For the kids who just don't want to be there. You you have to find a way to make them want to be there. And I, I've never had a situation where you can't eventually make that happen by showing them respect for who they are and their interests and giving them opportunity to show respect for you. It can take a while to build that relationship. Like I said, like I'll go home the first two weeks almost crying, thinking, (laughs) when am I going to get this kid on board is how I think about it. But if you greet them with a smile every day, you don't take things personally, you have high expectations for them, like you don't just let them get away with having an outburst or whatever without addressing it with them in a respectful way once they've calmed down, then unless they have an extreme disability, there are some kids that have special situations or disabilities where they need a a one-on-one type of a situation or a different kind of school. But for most kids, whether they're on the spectrum or not, I, I think it's our responsibility to create space for them. And this is the problem that I have with several institutions is it can happen within individual classrooms and it does, but how those kids are talked about and addressed and dealt with once they move beyond my classroom or whoever's classroom is the challenge. Like, so I guess your question is how to prepare those kids for the next, <laughs> the next step outside of my classroom. I mean, I would want to put that on you to yeah. like, I think every teacher has to do their thing the years that they have those kids. I mean, there are some kids that can't sit still for morning circle, for example. So you let those kids fidget. You can't change a kid immediately. It's a series of day by day, like really slow types of interactions. So in November, I will correct a kid and say, look, it's, you got to sit with us where we're doing this together. But on day one, if that kid is kind of fidgeting and turns backwards and they're not being too disruptive, then you can only take them where they are. You can't make them just be that kid that's really school ready if, if they're not. You have to recognize that it's going to be a slow process with some kids. You need to show them that you expect a lot from them and you and you know that they're ready. But if they're not ready, then you got to help them. <laughs> yeah. 
Your patience is enviable. I respect it. I admire it. I wish I could get it to carry over as a parent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and me both, sister. <laughs> but while your patience is enviable, look, you studied literature at Reed. You went on to pursue a PhD initially so you could start schools that were, I imagine, a repudiation of the type of institutions that you saw as anathema to best practices in education. And here you and I are very much being part of the institution. We are both public school teachers at a big city school. And while that's what we do for a living, I know that you also have a vested interest in Waldorf education. Indeed, you have a kid who's soon to start his Waldorf education. Perhaps if only as a path to walk me through your thoughts about the problematics of working in an institution like a Berlin public school. What's your interest in Waldorf and how does the Waldorf theory inform your practice in a decidedly non-Waldorf environment? So I'm not an expert in Waldorf education. I actually have quite a lot to learn. I was first introduced to it through my husband and his friends who are all ex-Waldorf students. And the first thing that struck me about Waldorf education is that everyone I've met aside from the people who absolutely hated it because they had a bad teacher and transferred out, loved it. So what strikes me is that you have, like, not just one, but every person you meet who went to a Waldorf school speak fondly of their education. And, like, childhood is so short and special and teenage years as well. And to hear, you know, 20-somethings at the time talk about what an amazing experience they had and how great so many of their teachers were. And of course, some really horrible ones mixed in. But just to hear an overall really positive and connected experience to education was what got me first interested in the Waldorf program. Prior to meeting my husband, really knew nothing at all about Waldorf education. So since then, I've done a little bit of reading and had many discussions with different Waldorf students what I, what I understand Waldorf to be is there's an inherent respect of the individual. There's certain aspects of the Waldorf philosophy and curriculum that I don't fully understand or even necessarily agree with, but this basic respect for the individual, this desire to foster love of the world, beauty in the world, and an understanding of the world, like is, is kind of their tenets, is really appealing to me compared with let's teach these kids these facts so they can pass the next test, which we don't like to say is what we do. And we all try to say that that's not what we do. But in the end, and from third grade on in a public school system in Berlin and many in America, you are working for a grade and the teacher's success is, is based on how well their students are doing academically. So I really like this inherent holistic approach to the Waldorf education that I feel like is missing from the public schools. Is that part of your interest in teaching K through two? Is that in that 
That's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, I have no interest in having tests as a legal document. I'm I'm just morally opposed to having that be the focus of education, which it must become in our school system. Even if just for the parents and not for the child, you have to, to show three tests every month or whatever it is. I don't even know to the administrators on, on how your class is doing compared with other groups. And I feel like that just kind of encourages a sole focus on academics to the detriment of everything else that's going on with the children to the detriment of each individual. It's, it's soul sucking to have the focus be on, do I get a one or a six is, is for me very, it's, it's offensive. It's sad. What does a one mean? What does a six mean? We have to lose sight of the individual child if we are just looking at how well they're performing. And and so what I really like about the Waldorf program is supposedly, I have I've yet to experience it as a parent, between the ages of seven and 14, they're really looking at the process and the development and the continuum of the child as he or she develops on their path. The focus is not on concrete facts that they learned, as far as I understand, but more just how they're how they're developing as a person. I guess my interest in your interest yeah. in Waldorf school, I mean, you're allowed to be large and contain multitudes. It's one of the many reasons I like you. But I'm interested in how you grapple with this matrix of values, right? Like you have to go to work every day and do the things that are required to teach in an environment where kids are generally speaking, not so free. Right. And where their individuality is for better or worse, not paramount. Right. But then you have these values as evidenced in part by your decision to send your kids to Waldorf schools where the individual is paramount and the development of the whole child and the near fetish on self-expression is the focus. And I'm not sure that I have the best question in the world about your thoughts about public education vis-a-vis Waldorf School, but I do want to get a sense of how you feel about your role as a contributor to a public system that you and I share, I would say a real healthy skepticism about. Mm. I, I mean, that's why I teach entrance class through second grade, because I can create this freedom for the individual and where they go after that depends on their teacher, I guess. You have to get lucky, but at the very least I can give them a start where where they feel confident and they're academically prepared to move forward in an institution that I might not necessarily agree with. I mean, I want school to be interesting and fun and engaging and somehow connect the individual. And this is what the Waldorf School does, supposedly, is connects the individual to their world. I mean, that's why they don't teach technology until much later. It's not that they don't teach it. They just start early teen years. And... And I like this idea in the Waldorf school of being connected to your natural world, being connected to gardening and animals and preparing you to live a life that 
I would want to live. Like my husband, if, if something needs to be sewed up or something with a garden or something needs to be built with your hands, he has the skill set and the confidence to do that. Because they do plays every year, he has the confidence. And even though it's not necessarily his natural talent, he's been prepared to speak in front of an audience or, or something like this. Whereas in our school system, those things may or may not be developed. It's kind of more an elective type of a situation. And clearly academics are the achievement that you are striving for. And from what I understand in the Waldorf school is that the academics will, will come along just as well. Yeah, I want the educational experience for all kids to be special and meaningful and not just the social interactions on the playground, but also like what they're learning when they're in class, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. So, Kate, my sense in speaking with you is that you strive to find the balance between the two. You incorporate some of the best strategies, philosophies, tactics of Waldorf education in your classroom, and you value the individuality of young people, and you strive to create and empower communities. And it seems like in the early years program, you can actually do both, right? You can do your due diligence, do the work that's expected of you by the institution, but also bring your whole self to the work and strike some sort of a balance. Right. Having spent 20 years teaching high school, it's been my experience that the mystic chords of memory sort of complicate people's view and frankly distort people's view about what their education was like. Mm -hmm. And I don't fault anyone for this. This is just who we are despite what we might hope and think, our memories are really frail and inaccurate. A lot of our listeners might think that they know about what happens in an early education classroom because, well, they were in one 30 years ago, right? Yeah, everyone's an expert. <laughs> everyone's an expert. Perhaps we can help to further foster their expertise what do you wish more people knew about what happens in the early elementary school classroom? What I wish people knew about what happens in my classroom anyway, I can only speak to mine. I just wish that people knew how purposeful the kids feel and how invested they are. I think that's really important. I'll sometimes have subs come in, substitute teachers, and say like, wow, the kids all really know what to do. They can almost run the day by themselves. And that's when I feel like I'm doing a really good job. Because at least as a parent, I'll send my kid to school. He was in entrance classes last year. I'll ask him what happened during the day. And as a parent, I'm really just kind of looking for, were you happy? Did you feel good? Do you have a friend? Like, that's kind of, that's what I'm thinking. What did you learn? Maybe I'm curious about that. I'm not actually so <laughs> curious about that, but I know a lot of parents are. But what you, you don't really see is just this balancing act and this kind of class that you have that's kind of coexisting. It sounds very simple. <laughs> Can I ask you a question about your feelings? Yeah. <laughs> As you walk with your students through that day plan, what does it feel like on a good day when it's all humming along? 
it feels great. Like I feel really proud. I, I feel like if everything is going well, we're following the day plan. I'll hear one of the kids remind the schedule person to move the schedule along. They keep track of the schedule. During math tubs time, I'll hear one kid compliment another kid on like, oh, you did symmetry. That looks great. Or you made groups of two or whatever, whatever they're doing when they're kind of, I mean, they're not just parroting me, but they're actually taking ownership of what they're doing and feeling good about it and, and feeling secure in how they're moving throughout the day. That feels really good. They're all purposeful, attentive. And it's okay if an issue comes up. It's okay if a kid has an argument, as long as I feel like I can intervene when necessary in a positive way and eventually have everybody kind of find their equilibrium again. Yeah. It feels really good to know that I've done the best that I can every day. And I know that you do the best that you can every day. I also know that it's not all chocolate and roses. No, it's sometimes it's challenging. <laughs> so can you give me the other side? Like, what's the part of the gig that really frustrates you? What's the grind? For me, the real grind is dealing with other teachers that are negative <laughs> and have an influence on what I'm doing. Like, we're all standing outside at recess Look, like it's not that certain kids don't find ways to try to annoy me or something like that, but because I'm able to put up this wall that I'm not emotionally affected and can just read their behaviors, which I can't do in any other area of my life, including as a parent, I'm able to deal with the kids. But what is really frustrating for me, and that happens time and time again, is a teacher will say, oh, that, that kid over there, he really has problems. He needs to um, repeat or you need to call his parents about this or that. I do communicate with the parents. I, I don't like getting negativity about students in my class from other teachers or in their class. It, it really bothers me if people are looking at students with a deficit approach. And I know that sometimes that's necessary in the way that our school operates to identify deficits. That's part of how we teach them. But when it's framed in a, in a negative way, it's just not it's just not helpful. I'm not the most positive person. I'm not happy all the time and, and that kind of thing. But to to fail to see the broader issue of what's motivating a behavior and, and then not being responsive to maybe what the broader context is with a child who's having problems is frustrating for me. And because one of the good things about our school is we are required to collaborate every week and, and talk every week. And there is a lot of joint decision making for important steps with a child, like if they're to repeat or get a warning or have the parents contact or something like this. Many colleagues you can talk to and you can really have a great conversation about a kid. But every once in a while, you know, it's it's just really frustrating when there's a deficit approach and you can't like penetrate that. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear it. It's really vexing to work in cultures of negativity and on some level, I get it. The work in which you all are engaged in the early years is overwhelming. It's stressful. It can be loud. And I imagine that it can really grind on people. And I'm sorry to hear that sometimes you have to interface with people who might not be working at the top of their game. I hope it doesn't get you down too much. I bet it does sometimes. I know what you're saying. 
we're good. I will say, because I don't want to make it sound like I'm never negative. Sometimes things from outside of your life can really affect your lens, like the way that you see other people, whether they're five years old or 40 years old. And so on those days, I just try to keep quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Wise, wise. And that's wisdom that's been earned through experience. Kate, you've been teaching for over 15 years. And of course, it's a case that in the throes of this here pandemic, even some of the most positive teachers and the most empathic people, they've struggled to be the best version of themselves in and outside of the classroom. I hope that every educational professional is seizing moments to critically reflect on their practices, to think about what they've done well and not done well in pandemic teaching, and to think about what they're going to do differently for the remainder of their careers based on things that they've learned during this, our collective tragedy. Kate, I wonder what teaching in the throes of a pandemic has taught you about education. First and and foremost, what, what stands out is how adaptable so many people were and had to be, especially older folks that really rarely use a computer except to check email or all of a sudden doing video chats and we're creating together lesson content that's appropriate for six-year-olds. That for me was really inspiring, having a lot of people come together and rising to the occasion to produce the best content on very short notice that we could. It helped me really isolate what is important to me in education. I was teaching entrance class, so academics were not quite as important. So obviously connectivity is one of the things that presented itself is the most important thing. So while we'd be creating some lessons like an art project or some assignments that the kids could do, I realized that I, I really didn't care if they did it or not. That's not what's important to me. What was important was, you know, showing up for our, our morning circle in our class and seeing each other's faces and doing some games together, sharing something about our life or just listening and seeing each other. It just helped me isolate that the, the, the most important part of education is learning who you are and how to interact with other people. And then also learning through that, like learning facts and all the academics along with that. But it just isolated that the academics are not the most important thing. Yeah. I mean, the most important thing is that sacred space that we share together. Yes. Right. The classroom as some sort of shrine to connectivity and empathy, community. And there was that moment, and I know you recall it, where we woke up one day and that was taken from us. And it reminds us how beautiful it can be when we're doing it right. And I know that there's a lot of beauty in your heart. There's a lot of beauty in your classroom. And so much of that has come out in our conversation today. And I'm really grateful for it. And that should be enough. But being borderline insatiable, Kate, (laughs) I have to ask you to help us wrap this thing up with sharing two stories. Can you tell us the story of a professional triumph and a professional failure. And let's begin with the failure so that we could end quite appropriately, I should say, (laughs) on a note of triumph. The one that first occurs to me is just the week before the end of school. 
I saw that there was marker stains and some dabs of glue on the table. The class was in the midst of cleaning up and I called them over and I said, I don't think I was that stern, but I, I, I told them this is, this is not acceptable. We know that we need to put a mat down. I don't care who did it. I don't need to know, but this really shouldn't happen. And I wasn't really proud of that moment. It's not generally the way to get people to behave the way you want them to behave. There's nicer ways of phrasing it, or there's different ways of getting people to think about what they're doing with questions, for example, or talking about it during a morning meeting. But it was one of those moments that all teachers have when you're just frustrated. You know, I yeah. told them this is extra work that I have to do to clean this up. The kids can't do it. I need a special chemical or something. So I didn't really think much of it. And then a little while after we cleaned up, and I think it was after we did the compliment circle, the youngest girl in the class came up to me. She had tears in her eyes and she said that she was the one that did that. Oh. And she just forgot and didn't know. And you could, she was emotional. And even a couple more times that day, she came up to me and, and I said, oh, don't worry about it. I just wanted the class to know that they shouldn't do that. But you didn't know, it's not a big deal. I tried to reassure her. And I think even the next day she's like, Kate, I'm really sorry. I really didn't know. This isn't the only time something like this has happened in my career, of course, you, yeah. although you try to avoid it, but it was just a reminder of how powerful we are to these little tiny kids. You can really forget how little they are when you're dealing with them on a day-to-day -day basis. And you can forget that while with some kids, you can kind of say really firmly like, oh, don't do that. And you try not to. But, you know, if you if you say that, it doesn't even affect them. But every kid is different and some are really sensitive. And so it just reminded how, how powerful we are. It's because you matter so much to them. Yeah. For all the right reasons. <laughs> It's a good reminder for all of us. Let's hear some success. Some success. Okay. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the one that pops into my mind, although it may seem a bit trivial. When I first moved to Germany, several new routines and things that I had to do. Teaching, for example, art and music was something that is done by specialist teachers in America. And here in Germany, in the lower elementary grades, I all of a sudden became responsible for teaching art and music to first and second graders. And this was very new and very unsettling for me. <laughs> um, I, I, I love music. I, I like to sing and play guitar, but I had not even sang in front of my husband, really. I think I very rarely sang just on my own. And so this idea of going in not only in front of my class to teach them how to sing, which is a big part of our bilingual program, but also once a week to know that one day I would be called upon to teach a song <laughs> to a hundred first graders in front of my colleagues was terrifying for me. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I just, I lived with that terror for a couple, a couple weeks and I knew that the day would come. And then I kind of realized, cause when you go to a new school, you don't know that certain things are expected. So I realized you're supposed to sing every day in front of your class. So I started doing that and boy, I turned red those yeah. first couple times singing in front of the class. The kids didn't notice they were great singers and they learned the songs. So I was proud. And I somehow knew that I would be able to avoid singing in front of the whole entire group for a couple months. But I also knew that my time was, was yeah, limited. Yeah, it was coming. And so finally in January, we were learning the calendar and the weeks. And I volunteered to sing the Days of the Week song to the tune of the Adams Family. 
And I did it. I could see the grade chair kind of glance at one of the other really good singers. Like, wow, this must be an American song. Um, Because the German songs, I have to say, are are really beautiful. Um, But this, this singing became a really important part, not only in my daily schedule, but also in the weekly schedule and the community building with the, with the whole group every week, I, I began to see the value in it. And I feel really proud that it's now such an important part of the day, of the curriculum, of learning another language. And, and yeah, and then singing became more part of my life. And I think it's, it, it helped me as a parent. I don't, I don't know if I would have sang so much to my children as I do now, and they're pretty musical, so yeah, I consider that to be a big triumph. <laughs> a tremendous triumph, indeed. <laughs> How wonderful. And as someone who is seeking to find his musical voice at the tender age of 45, <laughs> that gave me goosebumps. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. And thank you so much for being on my humble little podcast. It was such a joy to check in with you, to learn about you and your work. You've been an awesome guest and I'm so grateful for it. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for being interested. We did it. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) I will never listen to it. (laughs) I told you she was an all-star. Kate's some other level stuff. The kids in her class are fortunate to be with her. And I have a strong sense that they're keenly aware of that. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And if you did, and if you want to do your part to share our conversations with good, hardworking people, do a favor. Take a second and think about your favorite Studs episode. Maybe you liked the guest. Maybe the work intrigued or somehow mystified you. Maybe the conversation somehow left a mark on you. Whatever the case may be, Here's what you do. Think about a person in your life who might share your interest, copy the link, and shoot the episode over to them. And I've got to tell you, you're in for a real treat when we convene in two weeks' time. Because we're going to be exploring the working life of Coach Nate Calhoun. Nate's an elementary school sports teacher, but it's so much more than that. He's like a mashup of the Pied Piper and an A-list celebrity for elementary school kids. He's the most popular kid in school. (laughs) You'll love it. I can't wait to share that conversation with you. Until then, as always, I wish you health and wellness, kindness and tranquility. I hope you're being good to yourself and those around you. And I look forward to being with you in two weeks. 